Well, we say Happy Reformation Day. Reformation Sunday, I guess. Happy 500th birthday, anniversary. We gather here this morning with the Word of God. All of us have the Word of God. We have the Word of God in our hands. We have the Bible in our hands. And you know what? We always need to be reminded how blessed we are to have this our own copy. Our own copy of the Bible. Or copies that probably everybody has. And we're able to read it and understand it. That's amazing. We owe to many men and women who stood for the Word of God Many of them lost their lives because they stood for the Word. It's a great thing when people stand for your nation and they die for your nation. And we're very thankful for what they did. But then the Word of God, that we had to have that and to place it in our hands, to read it here, to study it, to go over it, uh, that's an amazing thing. And what those men wanted, like... Uh, William Tyndale, he wanted to be put in a language that they could understand, to be put in English. English! And that means a lot to us today, doesn't it? And the common people would be able to, to read that. Uh, of course, you've always heard of the, the, the common plowboy, that he'd be able to have a Bible and to be able to, to read it. So, But the people back in the 16th century, at the beginning of it in Europe had been without a Bible. They didn't own their own personal Bibles. And so they didn't really know what was in the Bible because it was not really preached. That had been like that for a thousand years. And then we know that the people then were left to their own understanding of what God was about. And whenever it was preached, it was preached in a language they didn't know. If you were German... You heard Latin. You're a common person who didn't go to university. You didn't know Latin. You would hear it but not understand it. And that's amazing because that went all the way up into somewhere around the 1950s that that continued where people couldn't even hear it. Whenever it was read, that that was in English. It was to hide the Word of God from the common people. Can you imagine it? Yeah, you can. Because the enemy doesn't want us to hear the Word of God. But the people did their best and they hoped that God would have somehow have grace on them. That somehow their good works would merit their salvation. So they'd do their best and they were never sure that they had ever done their best. How much is your best? That's where they were at. It was a works-based salvation that still exists today. Whether it be in Christianity or whether it be in... All the other religions, they're all works-based salvation unless they heed to Scripture. The people at that time, for the most part, did not know what Scripture said. Therefore, they did not know who Christ really was. They didn't know what grace was. They didn't know what faith was. And they really didn't know how to give glory to God alone because they had no sola scriptura And without Sola Scriptura, none of the other ones matter because it all starts from there. So, they could only have so much confidence in heaven as much as confidence they had as far as their sinlessness. If anybody be honest, they know they were not sinless, right? So they could 
have that confidence, the only way was through the Word of God. They had a fear of God. It was an unhealthy fear. It was a fear that was... They were scared of God. They were terrified of Him. There was not an awe or a reverence. And this is when the Reformation came. Out of the darkness came the light. The Word of God was then freed open to people. And we thank the Lord for that Reformation because here we are sitting here today 500 years later. This is the 500th anniversary of that start that uh, at least they qualify that with. Our being here today worshiping God, worshiping with God's people is because of this Reformation. So we're going to take a look back into history. We're going to feature on a man just a little bit that God used mightily that upset the whole world and it's still going 500 years later. And uh, I'm thankful that we are a group of people that hold to that foundation. Very thankful. The particular day we celebrate the Lord for this Reformation Sunday, this Reformation, He struck in many hearts. He caused their hearts to come alive. And we've often spoken of so much of Reformed theology down through the years, 30 years or so. It's at the heart of our beliefs and it's at the heart of our beliefs because not because of some denomination or some so-called reformation, but because it's the Bible. It's Bible truths. It really woke the people up to what's in the Bible. They discovered truths that they never knew before. And some of those truths need to be rediscovered today by many people in the church because they are in danger of being in the same spot that the church was 500 years ago and before that. We've many, we've mentioned many down through the years in the Lord where we gave actual biographies through our Monday night Bible studies or our Tuesday or our Wednesday night studies whenever it was, <laughs> whenever we met. And then on Sundays we've mentioned many of these who have made an impact on all of us. But it's the Word of God that does. It's not, not the men, but God raised them up. And some of them are like a, like a Tyndale, like a Wycliffe, like Luther, like Calvin, like Zwingli, John Knox, Bucer, up on into the next century, 17th century, where you have the, the English Puritans, uh, John Bunyan, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, our own American, considered to be the greatest thinker that America has ever had. And... Uh, what an impact all of those guys have made on my life and your life because they brought high doctrine to me whenever I had been just mulling around going to church but really not hearing these great truths that are really in the Scripture. When I was woken up to them, it was like I came alive. And literally, spiritually, I came alive. And I couldn't hold back. It was the holiness of God that made the impression upon me. That's where everything really 
just zooms in on what this is all about. The holiness of God. And out of the holiness of God, you think of the sovereignty of God. And of the sovereignty of God, you think of predestination, you think of election, you think of the doctrines of grace, you think of the substitutionary atonement. All those great grand doctrines, aren't they beautiful? Don't they ring to you in a beautiful way? Great high doctrines, imputation, justification, regeneration, sanctification. Aren't those important terms? Imputation of Christ's righteousness. Things that are at the heart of our beliefs. Justification by faith. Some of those things we're going to talk about. Uh, We're going to review the five solas as we think of these as being the very cries of the Reformation. These should be our cries. This is what our lives are about. So what are they? As we review these five solas, what are those five solas, Dennis, that you're talking about? I haven't heard all of these things or I kind of forget. And that's what we're going to do today. It helps us remember. How do they play such a role in the bringing of people alive to truth, to salvation, and quorum deo before the face of God? They saw that their lives were to glorify God in every aspect of their lives. And it wasn't just being some priest or monk in a monastery. But it was showing everybody is to live their lives totally for Him. So we're going we're gonna to start a little bit with the, with the story of the 500 years ago that featured Martin Luther and some of these other people. We'll tell just a little bit of that story, but we'll focus on how these five solas developed and... We need to be reforming always. Semper reformandi is really the cry, isn't it? Because otherwise it'd be done in a generation. Keep crying that. So I think of Romans chapter 1, verse 17 as one we'll read right here. Why don't we just stand up? This is one quick short verse. This is one that struck Martin Luther and the whole Reformation whenever he discovered what it really meant. And Paul in 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. For it is the what? The power of God. What for what? For salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here we go. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written but the righteous man shall live by faith. We'll talk about that shortly. Father, we thank You for this time that we have today. Thank You for many, many, many of the people long before us who stood for the faith, even lost their lives because of Your Word and the precious truths that are there that we get to glean today because of what they have left us. And of course, going back to, to Augustine and then the early church fathers. And then we think of all of the witnesses that went before us, witnessing what faith is as we had studied in Hebrews 11. And it's all pointing back to Jesus Christ, our supreme example. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. We'll start with a little bit of Luther. I've said, I think, a lot about his his life and his biography, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. 
but give a little brief review because it's always interesting to read it, to hear it again. It's a story how God used that. It's you know Luther is not found in the Bible, is he? You know he might have a translation, you know that was named after him, that was put in German, but because of certain people. God uses is how we get where we're at. It's the providence of God. And so He's just one of many that are interwoven in this grand design of God's plan. And now we're in that plan. Isn't that amazing? Now Martin Luther, as he was a student, he was a student of law as his father wanted him to be a lawyer, He screamed with fear as he was nearly struck by lightning. He's in a thunderstorm, scared to death. He's terrified to die. He did not have knowledge of Christ's sufficiency, God's gracious salvation. He didn't know anything about that. He didn't know about justification by faith at this time. This is before 1517. He, uh, he was so afraid that he went through a mediator. We go through a mediator by the name of Jesus Christ. He really didn't have Jesus Christ to go to. So he went to a mediator who was by the name of St. Anne. St. Anne, the patron saint of minors. Minors uh, would be related to, to Luther because his father was a minor. That's why his father wanted him to be a lawyer. And he sent him to school there. Well, Luther changes his profession. And and if you are trying to put your children through school and all of a sudden they quit school and go some other direction, some other way, uh, sometimes it makes parents very excited about it and, a matter of fact, dissatisfied about it. And that's what happened here. But he survived. He survived and he uh, entered the monastery. By the way, that door has now been put on there. Amen, right? We have a door here over to the right in Zach's class. And the office has been completed. I've got to put that in the middle of this. How does this fit into us, the, the sovereign work of God and, and Luther and such? Well, I think of that door as it's put in this week, and I think of the Wittenberg door. Wittenberg, Germany, where there was the 95 theses were put up by Martin Luther. And I wanted to so much this week to have a great big old copy up there for Zach whenever he had come and have a hammer there. And of course it would be great where people could take pictures of that you know, and they could go up there like this. If any of you saw on our Facebook whenever me and the boys there, McLosha and Nondor, were out at the uh, um, conference, at the Shepherds Conference, and where there was a door actually there. And of course, people took pictures of that with the, the hammer. And so everybody took advantage of that. I, I thought that would be great. But if you have a hammer hanging there, I'm afraid we, we might get rid of that door pretty quick. It's made really thick. But <laughs> Anyway, uh, to, to go back to that, we'll, we'll see how we get to this Wittenberg door in the 95 Theses because that is the date that we're celebrating. It's It was actually October 31st. And of course... Uh, we're on the 29th. Uh, th- that's why this is called Reformation Sunday. And many churches actually celebrate that. And then there are others who have no clue of what this is about. I kid you not. Most most churches today would not be celebrating this day because they have no idea what Reformation Day is. They have no idea. So anyway, uh, he he wound up in the monastery. 
But he never found peace. Never found rest there in the monastery. Constantly confessed his sins. And, of course, I've said it many times, he would walk out of the confessional, walk outside and turn right back around and head right back into the confessional because he just thought of something that was a sin. And, or he didn't mention it, and so he wants to make sure he gets that confessed. See, if you get all your sins confessed, then you're in good standing before God. Oh, how, how tiring would that be, folks? Uh-oh. Uh-oh, I'm not forgiven now. I've got to, I've got to go back to the... Everybody would be in the confession all the time. They, there would be not enough confessionals. But it got a little ridiculous. And of course, it was pointed out to him, you know, why, why does he keep doing that? But he was serious about all this. But anyway, he, he was so serious, he went on the pilgrimage to Rome. And if there's a journey uh, that any Catholic would do at that time was to try to get on that journey and go to Rome and climb up those famous steps one by one. And climbing, you climb by your knees on the rock steps. So Luther did this because that's what you would do. And as you crawled up those steps one by one, you would say the rosary on each one as you would go up. It would take some time to get up to the top of this. When you get to the top, then you would you could think of the indulgences that it would take to buy souls out of purgatory. And, you know, when Luther really thought about it, he saw how ridiculous this was. He found out what was in Rome. The Rome, Roman Catholic leaders of high position who lived there lived a very wanton lifestyle. It was despicable. It shocked him. He was terrified to see that all of them were living in ludicrous sin. Terrible. He was so disappointed. And then the selling of indulgences just made him sick to the stomach. He was angry at this deplorable religious system that had deceived him and was deceiving millions. The system recognized the sin of man, the sins of man, and we're talking about quantity. They recognized that man's sins, they knew that. And it was their sins that caused the problem, but Luther, as he started studying the Greek New Testament that was just translated into Greek at that time, imagine that by Erasmus. He was able to get to the literal words, the Greek words. He studied justification, faith. He's pitting that against this. He's considering this. Remember our study in Hebrews 12? Consider. Think about this. Think of it logically. And all of a sudden it started ringing to him. And he looked to that literal Greek meaning and it rang out. See, people said you had demerits because of the quantity of sins and because of each one of those you needed merits to overtake your demerits. And if you merits outweigh the demerits, then you're okay. Luther said, oh my, that's, that can't, that's not right. It can't be right. 
And in purgatory, it finally gets all ironed out in the end because then they're all done away. Demerits are finally purged after you've been there who knows how many years and how much dollars have come in. See, that's what the indulgences were about, the Catholic Church, how convenient it was. If every time something goes into that box, a coffer, then another soul comes out. And, and the people were promised that. If we keep doing this, then people will do... Well, it's money for the Roman church. Luther's question all along is, how can I be right before a holy God? Isn't that a great question? I think it's one of the best questions that anyone could ever ask. God is holy. I'm not. How can I be right before God? Luther said, I can't. I can't be right before God. I have no righteousness. If anybody, if anybody as a monk was going to go to heaven, Luther said it would have been me. And he realized he, he couldn't. He knew what a sinner he was. He saw the root of sin. He saw that God demanded absolute, perfect holiness. He's in trouble. We're in trouble. God demands perfect righteousness. Every human being that's ever lived is in real deep trouble. That's what God demands. So he discovered sin not as quantity, but as the very root of man's sin. That's what he is. He is a sinner. Secondly, he discovered alien righteousness. I know what you're thinking. Alien. You know, those little green men. Alien means foreign. It means outside of. It's outside of our planet. Outside of this universe. He, he saw that his righteousness meant nothing. He needed an alien righteousness, as they termed at that time. He needed a righteousness that satisfied God's demand for absolute righteousness. It has to come outside of ourselves. We know that. It's alien to me, right? (laughs) He read the Bible. He had studied the Bible. He taught the Bible. Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. You go, Habakkuk, Habakkuk. We're talking about tobacco here, Dennis. What? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. It's really the unbeliever. But the righteous will live by his faith. Righteous or the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Same thing. They will live by their faith, not works. The righteousness that is not of mine, it's of somebody else's, it is of Christ's righteousness that I will live in this life by faith, which is my instrument. I'm saved by faith, I live by faith, by righteousness, not mine, but Christ. You've heard of Double imputation. You guys heard of that? Most of you say, that sounds like a theological term term here, and you're right. But I'm going to step it up a little bit. Let's call it triple imputation. What? That sounds a little odd, Dennis. Go back to Genesis. And you have the imputation of sin to all of mankind after Adam and Eve, right? 
we are imputed His sin. His sin is, according to Romans 5, is our sin, our nature. And then Christ, the cross, takes on our sin that was given to the, or that the first Adam had because of his sin. And that was transferred to us, is now transferred, reimputed to Christ. And then Christ's righteousness is given to us as we had already given our sin to Him, or He took our sin, that's better said, and He gives His righteousness to us. Now there's your double imputation. Christ taking on our sin and us being given His righteousness. Double imputation. The triple imputation goes back to Adam's sin given to us in the first place. So, however you want to count it, it's most termed as double imputation. It, it all involved what Christ did though. He discovered that His righteousness was given to me. The righteous shall live by faith. Not in all the works. Did you know He taught classes? University. He taught Galatians. He taught Romans. He has commentaries on Galatians and Romans. And do you know what he emphasized? The righteousness of Christ. Justified by faith. Those were key books. So what, what happened? You can say, well, how did, he, how did he learn this? Well, he learned it from those and then he lectured on those particular books. And this is when, as he read the Bible, at the heart of his contest and his wrestle and his struggle with Roman Catholic faith and the church of his day and this day to day, at the heart of this was what we just talked about. The imputation of Christ. Not infusion, but the imputation. Luther's reading of the Bible caused this. And on October 31st, 1517, he had written up 95 theses showing the wrongs of Roman theology that was not biblical. He did it. The social media of the day. Here was Facebook at its best. Went on the, at the university, at the door where everybody is considered a, a community-type community place, if you can imagine a city hall or something like that, and this would be at the university there, as he stuck this 95 theses up there, he's inviting people to read that. They're going to have a discussion on it. It, just like a lot of social media and Facebook posts do, they create controversy. Luther wasn't trying to create controversy. He was just wanting to share what he had discovered in the Bible and what he had been teaching in his classes. Oh boy, a firestorm happened. I mean, the fire took off. The post was made. Controversy now goes all over Germany. It spread as quick as what Facebook does. I'm kidding you not. Once it was gotten out, it went everywhere. 
And, uh, you know, Luther is ready to stand on that, but he didn't know he was creating such controversy. He didn't know that there was going to be a reformation at this time. That's not his idea. It was to reform the church in thinking what salvation really is biblically. That's all he wanted to do. Never wanted to start the Lutheran church. That was not his idea at all. He wanted to change some things. So now we go into the five solas. And because of what Scripture said, this is the first sola. It's sola scriptura. Without this, none of the other solas really make any difference. Because this is where we get those. You have to get something, some teaching from a source. The foundation. The foundation is Scripture. Now that's already been argued for. Uh, even There were pre-reformers. And you can think of Jan Hus, Czechoslovakian, who had been screaming this same thing. Uh, of course, a hundred years later, here comes Luther, right? And so um, he gets to be able to bring forth this. He starts with Scripture. By the way, say solos. What in the world is a sola? Very easy. Uh, you ever heard of anybody do a solo? <laughs> That's simple, isn't it? That from the Latin to the English, and much of our English comes from the Latin, and a lot of our English also comes from the Greek. But sola, solo, uh, alone. Right? So, sola scriptura is scripture alone. Now, what does that mean? That we can't read any other books? Well, no, that's not it at all. Matter of fact, we can now read books to help us understand and to get this even further in our, in our thoughts and, and then go back to the Scripture and see how that works in. See, Luther had written books all along through this and pamphlets and such, and they're going to get confiscated. The church does not like what he's writing. And... But he was just pointing forth, here's what Scripture says. That's his whole here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. That's what that's just what he continued to echo. So the Reformation was a movement that began in the fifteen hundreds and it sought to reform the traditions and beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church. And it identified different theological positions. He distinguished characteristics of Reformation theology. And of course, this whole Scripture idea is where it starts. They had taught, the Roman church taught that the foundation for faith and practice, faith and then living it, was a combination of Scriptures. They won't deny that. But also, and there's where our problem comes in, and this is where Scripture alone comes in. But also the traditions and the church magisterium and the popes. That's their authority. So was Scripture held as the, the authority? No. That's the difference. Matter of fact, they would say it was equal with the other ones. I would say no, it wasn't equal because it was what they said. And they were deplorably wrong in all the major doctrines, even though they were close. You look at it and you say, we're not even similar to Roman Catholic belief whatsoever because they redefine terms. 
They use terms such as Christ, justification by faith. Absolutely, they say. They use salvation, grace. You just go on and on, but they will have. What it comes down to it, a different idea than what is presented in the Scripture. And whatever differs from Scripture, they will appeal to their traditions or the the church magisterium or the Pope. So that's where this all came in. So as he wrote these books and pamphlets, as he preached in church, and as he taught in the classes, made a lot of people upset. And he was interrogated at in a place called Worms. I say that because I didn't want to say it another way because then I was trying to do a German accent. But they wanted him to recant. All you have to do is recant. Just reverse what you have said and written. These books, you take them, we'll burn them. Okay? Start over. Just recant. And he says, I can't. He says that he would stand on the Scripture. Whatever that meant. Whatever the consequences, he's standing on the Scripture. And the Scripture alone. That's the idea. And so he says, unless I am overcome with testimonies from Scripture or with evident reasons, unless I'm overcome by these, for I believe neither the Pope nor the councils, uh-oh, since they have often erred and contradicted one another, I am overcome by the Scriptures which I have adduced and my conscience is bound by God's Word. Here I stand. Right? I'm held, my conscience is held bound by God's Word. It's all the authority of God's Word or nothing. Here I stand. Whether he said here I stand, there's debate on that, but I think it really makes sense. I think it really rings, doesn't it? I stand. I stand on this truth. Unless you can show me somewhere else or somewhere in there that I'm wrong, I have to stand on this. So, it was the formal principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura or Scripture alone. They are alone the final the highest authority that we have. It's God's very Word. All things that we learn from any other sources, as long as they agree with God's Word, they're good. That's good. Anything that can be of help. But if they don't match Scripture, we're not to affirm them. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4.6, not to exceed what is written means to go beyond it, make it say something different. Um, in the Belgic Confession, this Belgic Confession was part of the Reform Movement a little bit later, we believe that the Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God. And that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. Neither may we consider any writings of men However holy these men may have been, uh, never of equal value with those divine Scriptures 
nor ought we to consider custom or the great multitude or antiquity or succession of times and persons or councils, decrees or statutes as of equal value with the truth of God. Therefore we reject with all our hearts whatsoever does not agree with this infallible rule. Is that made clear? There's nothing else. Matthew chapter 15 verse 6, Jesus said really the same thing. This He said to the scribes, the Pharisees. Matthew 15.6 Something very familiar. He is not to honor His father or His mother. And by this you invalidated the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. The tradition held up over what the Word of God's commands were. And they made it fit their own theology, their own little club, and was dealing with the tradition. Tradition. So, that is one of the main ringings of that. We look in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. I am writing these things to you that you will know how one ought to conduct himself to the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, that sounds like a tradition, but it's actually coming from truth. These things that I write to you, what is Paul writing? He's writing Scripture. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17, he says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned. Of course, Paul had written a lot of things to them. Become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which were able to you give the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith. There was the things that they had before, the Old Testament, the writings led to salvation in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the Scripture there is inspired by God and it's for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that we will be equipped. Psalm 119, verse 18. Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible. 119. Verse 18. Every verse there is about the Word of God. I like this one. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from Your law or the Word. You know what? That would be a good prayer before we read the Bible each day. Open my eyes so that I may behold wonderful things. They are wonderful, aren't they? Look at Psalm 138, verse 2. 
I will bow down toward your holy temple, give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. He magnifies it, puts it up on a pedestal, the word of God. He chose to reveal Himself by written Word. Not something where we just kind of think on our own. Well, this is what I come to the conclusion of. This is what God means to me. And everybody could just go off and have their own definition of God. You know what that's called? Idolatry. He said, well, I have the God that you have, the same God. Yes, I even believe in Jesus. Is this Jesus of Nazareth that is written about in Scripture? If it doesn't agree with this, it's idolatry. We stand on this or we fall on this. The Word of God, folks. Read it. Read it every day. What a gift it is that you hold this in your hands. Much of the people down through the centuries never got that privilege. Once a week, they'd be able to hear the Word of God preached. Or in the early church, they met every day from house to house. They couldn't get enough of it, right? Well, that's Sola Scriptura. We go to the second Sola. Sola Fide. And again, this was all a part of this Reformation very early on because Luther held to faith alone. Did the Catholic Church believe in faith? Yes. Did they believe in justification by faith? Now there's the thing. Yes, they did. You say, what? They believed in justification by faith? We talk about that all the time, don't we? Well, they had in their their belief system justification by faith. Luther had to put alone, or the Reformers put alone. Faith alone. Not faith plus, but faith alone. Scripture doesn't have anything to go along as far as authority. It's just Scripture itself. Faith doesn't have anything like baptism, like taking communion, like going to the confessional, the Mass, right? Faith alone. It is the alone instrument of justification. See, that's what it is. It's an instrument. It's a tool of justification. Faith receives and rests on Christ and His righteousness. That's the alone instrumentation of justification. We are believing in Christ's sacrifice. We rest our whole lives on that sacrifice of Christ. Do you believe the, the light had come? We read Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4. It's also found in Romans 1.17, which our first verse that we read. The just shall live by faith. The righteous live by faith. Who are the righteous? They're the ones who've trusted in the righteousness of Christ that has been put upon them. And also their sin had been put upon Christ at the cross and He died for that sin. He paid for it. The Catholic Church taught that we're justified by faith and the works for salvation. The works we produce. Righteousness is then infused into us. Christ and our righteousness, they're infused together. And here is what divides the Roman church from Protestant faith. 
infusion, Catholic Church. It's faith, it's righteousness, it's Christ in my life, but it's infused with my own righteousness. Now that's infusion. Imputation is the key term that separates the whole Roman faith from Protestantism. What is imputation? Where we talked about double imputation or triple imputation, right? His righteousness was put to our account. A banking term. You go to the bank and you expect to withdraw only a few dollars and you find out that the five dollars that you had in there now is two million dollars. And you say, what? I didn't put that in there. You find out that somebody put it into your account. You didn't do anything to get that. Now, I know you're going to be checking the bank out tomorrow to see if that happened. <laughs> Usually doesn't work that way, does it? Salvation, no, it does. Which is even more important than that $2 million, right? <laughs> so, sola fide, justification by faith, imputation. We're saved from our sins by faith alone, in Christ alone, and it's not by faith plus baptism, faith plus church, faith plus membership, faith plus good works, faith plus sincerity, faith alone. That's why they call that. Now, it is not alone in the sense that when you become a Christian, it actually, the works work with your faith now. Never for salvation, but because of faith, it is not alone because now the works come in with it. And that's the idea of Christian faith. You look in Romans chapter 3, 21-26, and you can imagine whenever Luther, who was reading that Greek New Testament, which had just been written... He's teaching Romans and he's studying Romans 3.21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been seen. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The Bible shows what righteousness of God is. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. We're saved by grace, aren't we? Justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a satisfaction. God was satisfied with the cross work by Christ. In His blood, through faith, this was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just Christ was just and the justifier of us. He's the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you think that set Luther free? Yes. 
Christ's righteousness. He gave it to me. I have faith in Him because He gave me that instrument. I'm declared righteous. Justification by faith is a legal declaration. That explains why sometimes we don't feel righteous. And in our bodies, we are not righteous. Do you know that? But in Christ, we are righteous. And so that's why there's been a declaration as far as God is concerned. He says, sin forgiven. We're in Christ. He looks at Christ. Sola gratia was another central cry of the Reformation. The church at that time taught that we're saved through a combination of God's grace and the merits that we accumulate through penance and good works. Penance, repenting. Repenting and then you do this. You say so many Hail Marys and then you are forgiven by the priest. That's where your forgiveness comes from. You can say, yeah, the priest. That's Jesus Christ. He's the great high priest. No, no. By that priest. You, you do this and you, you are forgiven. What hope are they offering? The reformers responded, sola gratia, grace alone, that we're saved, that we're forgiven. Grace through faith. The doctrines of grace. The tulip, right? Total depravity. Our nature is sin. The U stands for unconditional election. Based upon Christ's work, not us, it's unconditional. L for limited atonement or particular redemption. That means He died specifically for the sinner. He died for you. It's limited in that it is for the ones who He dies for. That He pays their debt for. It's irresistible grace and sola gratia is grace alone. That means the sinner, whenever he's offered the grace of God, he says, oh no, no, I don't want any of that grace. I don't need it. Well, people who turn that down show that they are really not of God. But the ones who say, oh, I need that grace. That's the only way I can get my sins forgiven. It's His grace that's put on me. It's irresistible. And then perseverance of the saints. I like preservation better. He preserves us. He preserves us all the way through this life. Our sins are forgiven. Ephesians 1, 3-8. Oh boy, does this ever give us a picture of grace. I said Ephesians, didn't I? I said Ephesians 1, didn't I? You ever want to study a passage and just study and study on it and read over it and read over it? This is one. Ephesians 1 3. It never gets tiring. Blessed be the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be Him who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, long before you even said yes. And yes, it is right to say yes to Christ. 
But you know what? He chose you before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and we be blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace, sola gratia, grace alone, which He freely, that's grace, bestowed on us in the Beloved. We are in Christ. In Him, we have redemption. We have been bought through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. We're saved by grace. Not anything of ourselves. It is the gift of God as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Is that overwhelming? I didn't finish the rest of that section. That's for you to look at later. Isn't that great? He said, yeah, I've read this over and over. I can't wait to read this again. And again and again. You ever had something so precious to you that you just want to read it every day? <laughs> Think on it every day, all the time. Well, Martin Luther said, Truly then, we are saved by grace alone, without works or other merit. Do you see how all of these solas just kind of came into culmination as time proceeded? <laughs> Sola Christus. The sole mediator. He is the priest. Solus, sola, alone, Christ alone. Remember the song that we sing? In Christ alone. Nothing else. Not of our works. How about they had mediators of Mary? A mediator goes between God and man. So their mediator was Mary and also the saints that went before them. The intercessions of the faithful. How nice. The people who have died, they're interceding for us right now. And that will help us get out of purgatory after we die. That's the theology. Luther, the Reformers say, no, 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 no. It's not Mary, and it's not the saints. It's not angels. It's not anything or anybody else. It is Christ alone. They say saints are to be venerated and invoked. By the way, we have little statues that we can have to remind us that they are interceding for us. So we don't need just Christ. It's a, it's awful easy. It's a lot easier to go to Mary and speak to her, and it's a lot easier to go to the saints. Christ is, uh, oh man, he's awful holy, and so are those saints. But I feel better with them. First Timothy chapter two, verse five and six. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator. One. It's mentioned how many times? Twice. Also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Not Mary. Not the saints. Not the angels. Who gave Himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. It was given for us. Jesus Christ is the only mediator 
It is He who is the priest that goes before us. And the last one, but not the least, Soli Deo Gloria. Let's say that together. Soli Deo Gloria. That's the motto of the Reformation. To God alone be the glory. With all those that we've just looked at, how could you give glory to anything else? You wouldn't give it to the church, the magisterium, to the pope, would you? The priests, the cardinals, the bishops, would you give that kind of glory to them? All in their dress and their robes that they had. That was to bring glory and the, the bright colors and everything that happens in the Mass. How glorious it is with the sights and the smells, the colors and... That's the glory that they have. Indeed. This is what Reformation is about. This is what, what Reformed and the Puritans took this much further than even Luther and Calvin did because they saw that it couldn't be worked in the church as they tried to do and they realized it just brought more problems to them and many of them were killed and put in jail. So they had to start their churches that were reformed churches. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. They're not separated there. Glorify, enjoying is the same thing. Are you enjoying today? If you're enjoying today because of what we've just looked at in these truths here, you're glorifying God. What greater thing could there ever be? That's what we live for. This is what this is all about. Our lives individually. Our lives as we come together as a congregation. The Reformation reclaimed the Scriptures and they found the sovereignty of God in everything. Not only salvation, but in every avenue of everybody's life. Before it had been the secular and it had been the sacred. If you entered a monastery or a nunnery, that was the sacred. If you were one who was not involved as far as serving in the church, you were really doing secular things, and that's how they did it. We see that we live for God at our jobs, at home, when we're shopping, when we're just out having fun, reading the Bible, whatever we do, mowing the lawn, I do this for the glory of God. Washing the dishes, I do this for the glory of God. We, we really do because we don't deserve to have dishes. We don't deserve to have food. We're going we're gonna to eat today to the glory of God. Matter of fact, that's scriptural, isn't it? Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Whatever we do. And we... Get ready to God. Give glory to God in its fullness here. In Romans chapter 11, I, I can't fail to use this one, and, and we're going to close out here on this, this thought. Of course, verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! Exclamation point! How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him 
are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. The sovereignty of God in every aspect. People in the 16th and 17th century, they sought to reform the church according to the Word of God. And this is what they came to the conclusion of. This is what it's all about. Why should God be glorified? Why is man saved? Man doesn't earn it. Man can't. Man doesn't deserve it whatsoever. But God has elected us to it and it shows off His glory as Romans 9 says. How is a man saved? And the answer is by the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by us, but by Christ alone. What does that mean? God saved us through the Lord Jesus His Son. We can't save ourselves. God saved us. He gets the glory. The power of the Holy Spirit working in us allows us to give Him glory in all things. The effectual calling, God's call for us to be quickened to new life, that's all glory to God, isn't it? I've got the passages, but the clock says it's time to end. So we say, to God alone be glory. What I want to do, and this is, this is going to be our prayer, okay? And your bulletin down at the bottom, it says, Soli Deo Glory in, in bold letters. Right there is that song. And I want us all to join in on it. You know what it is. Glory be to God the Father. Glory be to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. Great Jehovah, three in one. Glory, 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 while eternal ages run. Glory, 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 while eternal ages run. That's our prayer. Glory be to God. Glory be to God now as uh, we thank the Lord for Him working through all the ones who have prepared this food today and we get to feast on that. And uh, just it's a glory to God coming together like this. I can't think of a better thing to do than to be with God and His people and celebrating Him. And uh, so, I say, are we supposed to say, go eat? Or we wait? I'll tell you what we need to do. is uh, There's a couple of rows that we can take out of chairs, move them kind of on the side. There are some glass uh, round tables back there. There's one over there. There is a table that's in there if somebody wants to sit. There's a table in that room that we might want to bring out that's an, I think, is it an eight-footer? I think it seats eight. Uh, it's a little bit different than what we've had before. And we'll say whenever it's time to eat, we'll start on the right side, if you're looking back that way, and go through the line and come out on the left-hand side as you're looking this way. The chairs are in the Zach Whitson's room. And yes. And there's, there's more tables in the hallway also. So uh, if we can just kind of team up together, kind of move chairs uh, out, bring tables in, bring tables out, and uh, probably by that time, within what, how, how long, 15 minutes or so to get this all together? Okay, and I'll say the blessing. This will be the blessing for our food and everything then, okay? Father, we thank You for this day. Thank You for Your Word. And Lord, as we get prepared now to be able to eat with uh, all the things that You provide for us, and then, of course, the people who have made this, uh, this mighty, tasty food that we have that we get to enjoy, and 
we know that uh, it, it all comes from You. And this is all glory to You, Lord. Thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen.